Grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back corner over by the door. We'd love to have you grab one of those. And if you don't own a hard copy, we would love to have you take that home with us, take that home with you. Uh, That's uh, our gift to you, and we would love to have you uh, use that. You can also follow along on your phone if that's better. No problem at all. Um, We're in Matthew 26 starting this series that will take us through Easter Sunday called the Gospel of the Cross. If you've been at York Alliance for a while, you know that literally a generation ago, we began the Gospel of Matthew, slowly working our way through. Uh, Literally, people have been born and died since we started this thing. It's been a long time. It's been a journey. And we are uh, three chapters away from the end. And so we are going to take the next six weeks, the, the week's that are designated Lenten Sundays, where we consider the sacrifice of Jesus, our own hearts, uh, a season that's marked by penitence and repentance. And we're going to spend that time really digging into the chapters 26 and 27, where Matthew, in beautiful epic style, lays out for us the end of Jesus' life. Now, there's an inherent danger in that, which is the the Those two chapters, Matthew puts together in this beautiful way that are really intended to be this kind of uh, epic, beautiful narrative that if we were to preach it straight through like that, we'd have like eight-hour services. And I would be up for that, but most of you have told me you're not up for eight-hour services. So um, we're going to take it apart in little pieces. But can I encourage you, if you don't have a Lenten discipline or you would be willing to layer on top a Lenten discipline over the next six weeks— Can I encourage you to take Matthew 26 and 27 and two or three times a week, read just straight through it and put yourself in the story. Imagine the the narrative unfolding. It's so beautiful, held all together and heart-wrenching, and it puts you right in the middle of it. That's Matthew's intent. And then as we take it apart piece by piece, that reading week by week will become richer and richer as you see more detail and as you're able to see all that Matthew's doing. And so I would encourage you to step into that. And then, God willing, on Easter Sunday, we will finish Matthew. We will hit uh, Matthew 28 uh, and the resurrection, and uh, we're looking forward to that. So, um, so that's where we're headed. I, I want to start today with a guy named Ralph Waldo Emerson. You probably know that name, but not necessarily as the beginning of a sermon. That's not usually where Emerson is found. Um, but look at what Emerson has to say. A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship for what we are worshiping we are becoming. Emerson was a transcendentalist who didn't have a whole lot of biblical to him, but that is a biblical quote. That's a very Jesus quote. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount something very similar. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Effectively saying, where you put your time and your energy and your passion, your your life is going to be shaped around that thing. What you worship, you will become. There's an invitation to us to consider what is it that we're putting our energy towards? What is it that gets all of our time and our imagination? In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes what is a a puzzling and terrifying statement. In uh, chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says this, 
therefore God gave them up. That phrase, gave them up, is always one that connotes judgment, that he's talking about something negative. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Now, that word lusts for us is negative, and it's appropriate as a translation because Paul is talking about judgment, but it really just means the desire of, their, of our hearts. So what, what Paul just said, now get your head around this. What Paul just said is, the worst thing that God could do for you and I is to give us what we want. What we most deeply desire, that's going to be judgment for us. Isn't that crazy? Like what you and I want, like what, what our, our, our lives desire, that's the stuff that's going to kill us. And Paul goes into the next verse, he says why. So look at the next verse. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So Paul says this, our problem is not that we desire, our problem is that we don't get high enough in our desires. That we're designed to be satisfied by the creator, but our brokenness, our sinfulness, always satisfies, is satisfied by the creation. We, we desire something transcendent, but we end up with something very temporal. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says it this way. Every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. Keller's saying that we are worshipers. We must live for something. There is something that has captured us, something that is our highest allegiance and that gives us hope. The question is, what is that something? I lay all of that out for you because what Matthew is going to do in Matthew chapter 26 is give us two pictures of worship. One of those pictures is transcendent and beautiful and fulfilling, and the other one is shallow and cheap and brings us to death. And he lays them both out before us and in a masterful way of writing says to you and I, where do you fit? And so that's where we're headed. We're going to ask the question, where do we fit? What are we worshiping? Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We'll read through the verse 25 verses this morning. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? 
and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that you would, by your grace, speak to us the words that we need to hear. There's more in these 25 verses than we can possibly take in this morning. And so God, by your grace, would you give us the words that we need? Help us by your living word and your active spirit to receive what you've prepared for us. May the words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may the words that come from your spirit remain. I pray that they would find fertile soil in our hearts and that they would bear up, they would, they would bear much fruit, that they would grow up and they would bear worship and repentance and hearts that are aligned with you. And so, Jesus, would you lead us? Your servants are listening. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there's a bunch in here. I want to look at just three ways of being that this passage lays out for us. The first one is being handed over. The next one is being poured out. And the third is being all in. Handed over, poured out, and all in. If you were to read this in the original Greek text, it would come off the page a little differently than it does in English. I I try to spend a lot of time in the original language because it's not overly helpful to us, but there are times where there are things happening in the original language that we just miss. And one of those things in this context is that if you were reading through those 25 verses, there's one word that would continue to come out. It's translated in a bunch of different ways in English, but the, the word in Greek is paradidomai, and you would see it again and again and again, seven times in this text. Matthew uses it throughout the gospel 31 times, and half of those times are in t- chapters 26 and 27. Seven of those times are in these 25 verses. It's often translated handed over or delivered up or betrayed. And again and again and again, Matthew is coming back to it. And if you were reading it in the original language, you would have been saying, what's he, what's he trying to say? What, what, what's his point? The very first time it comes up is in verse 2. Uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up, paradidomai, handed over, to be crucified. Now, 
every time that word is used, or just about every time that word is used in the Bible, it, it speaks to judgment. So um, in Romans 1, the verse that we looked at, it was used again, and it was talking about judgment. It was talking about the, the judgment of God. Uh, but this first time that Matthew's using it, it's odd because it's in passive voice. It's, uh, he's, he's going to talk about the human agents that deliver him up, that handed him over, and certainly there's a part of the text that that's really important with, but that he starts by saying, Jesus is going to be handed over. And it's a passive voice kind of thing that's not pointing towards any human agent, but effectively what Matthew's saying is there's a larger, uh, a larger narrative at work here that God the Father is doing something, and that something is now being played out by the human agents all around, Jesus included. That phrase, handed over, ties back to, in the Old Testament, the, the, so if, if you're familiar with the way the Bible's written, the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, but by Jesus' day, it had been translated into Greek, and that was kind of the popular way that people were engaging the text. And so Matthew would have, uh, would have thought through the Old Testament in Greek, in the Greek language, and specifically Isaiah chapter 53, the song of the suffering servant. You're maybe aware of that. I'm not going to read through the entire text, but the second half of Isaiah 53 is filled with that paradidomai language. So let me just read a couple of them to you again. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read uh, to you. Uh, Starting in verse 6, Isaiah says this, all we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's that word, paradidomai, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he goes on to talk about Jesus being oppressed and afflicted for the sake of his people, or the the servant being oppressed and afflicted for the sake of his people. Um, This is the section of the Bible where it talks about the the wounds of Jesus bringing the healing of people to people. So that's a little bit before this section. And then in verse 12, it says, uh, as he wraps up the narrative, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul, paradidomai, to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin, that's another time, paradidomai, the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's the point. Here's what I want you to see. Uh, Matthew is pulling out this idea that, that God the Father is operating in history to bring Jesus not just as a good and righteous man who is going to be unjustly accused. Now, it it would be very normative for us to come to Matthew chapter 26 and say, Jesus is good. Why are they killing him? Jesus didn't do anything wrong. That's, That's unjust that he's being killed. And that would be true. But that would not be sufficient. That's not all that's happening. It would be very appropriate to get to Matthew 26 in a a, a narrative that talks so much about the kingdom of heaven and say that Jesus is modeling for us what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven, that he's showing us what it means to live in the kingdom, and now as he moves to his death, he's showing us how to live sacrificially, self-sacrificially as a model of the kingdom, and that would be true, but that would not be sufficient. Matthew is calling us back to the fact that Jesus is not simply fully man, but he's also fully God. And he wants to be very direct about the fact that in these next two chapters, God is going to be led to his death. 
Think about that. God, the eternal being, the creator of all, is going to be led to his death. When Jesus died, he didn't simply die as a model. He didn't simply die as one who was an un, a sacrifice, who was sacrificed unjustly. He died as a substitute for us. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 says. And Matthew, looking back on all that occurred, is making sure that you and I get that Jesus didn't simply model a way to live for us. He died on our behalf that we would take his righteousness because he bore our sin. And just because mystically we don't fully understand what that means and we can say the words without kind of getting our heads all the way around it, Matthew's saying don't back away from it. That's, that's the, the Bible is explicitly clear that what happened when Jesus died, in addition to all kinds of other things, is that he took on our sin and gifted us his righteousness. The English word that Paul uses to describe this is the word propitiation. Now, you, that may be a Greek word to you. I, I assure you it's English, but it, it's probably one that you don't have spend a lot of time with. The Apostle John uses that word as well several times in his letter. And, and what that means is that God has poured out his wrath on Jesus, who has been the propitiation, the recipient of the wrath of God for our sin. So what's happening here is that Matthew's saying Jesus is being handed over and the wrath of God is being poured out in order for us to be healed. And that becomes this, this fascinating juxtaposition because the wrath of God is getting poured out onto Jesus, but now the narrative is going to turn and there's going to be another kind of pouring out that's going to happen. So it, the scene transitions into Simon the leper's house. And there's an unnamed woman. The Apostle John tells us that her name was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. But in Matthew's account, she's unnamed. Who comes to Jesus in the midst of this meal and brings an alabaster flask full of expensive ointment. Again, John tells us that it's pure nard, which sounds really nasty, but it actually was really beautiful. It was a very expensive perfume. And this, this flask, theologians tell us, was likely worth the equivalent of $12,000. So this poor woman brings what was uh, effectively her life savings, 12, a $12,000 flask, and she didn't just take a little bit and dab it behind his ears, which is, I think, what you're supposed to do with expensive cologne, but she didn't, she didn't do that. She, she literally breaks it, and it pours over all of him. In fact, Matthew says that she anointed his head, and John said that he, she anointed his feet, and I think that that difference is because if you pour a whole flask over somebody, it gets a little bit of everywhere, right? So I think, I, I think both were anointed in the process. Well, she, she comes and she takes this, this extravagant gift and pours it out on Jesus. And the disciples say, whoa, like, that, that is, that's a bad idea. Like, are you serious? That was a really bad idea. And I, I don't know about you, the way that I think about this story, Judas says that because uh, John calls Judas out specifically and says that Judas uh, wants to sell it because he is the keeper of the money and he's kind of pulling some money off to the side. And so Judas wanted the money. But Matthew's honest. Ma Matthew says all of the disciples had a problem with it. Like, the disciples were worked up. 
And it makes sense, right? Because we just came on the heels of Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said, there's going to be, at, at the end of days, there will be two groups of people. One will be sheep and one will be goats. And those who are going into the kingdom of heaven, will, they're going to be marked by the fact that they cared for the least of these. They were people who gave to the poor, who helped those who were unable to help themselves. And so the disciples listening to Jesus teach are like, wait a second, like that's 12 grand. Like we could have, we know how much we could have done with 12 grand? Like we could help people. And, and so they, they're, they're upset with this woman and Jesus says, no, 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 stop. What she's done is beautiful. And he defends her act. And it's fascinating because Jesus is constantly on the side of the poor, but not always the plural poor as much as those who are right in front of him. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, in talking about Jesus' defense of this woman, says it in a fascinating way. He says this, the disciples are willing to hurt a woman who is there for the sake of the poor who aren't. Jesus is unwilling to serve the plural poor at the expense of one single poor woman. He will not let even one human being be sacrificed on the altar of principle. I love that picture because it's so much the way that we're wired. We, we want to we help the world, and in order to help the world, we fail to help the people who are right in front of us. And Jesus says, absolutely not. Here is someone right here who needs to be honored and loved and cared for. Let's honor her, not in, in some, uh, some way care for the unnamed poor masses who are somewhere else. Jesus says, this is worship. Now, as we talk about worship, let, let me make sure I give you a definition because worship is not primarily singing songs. That's not what we're talking about. When you hear the word worship, don't hear song singing. Um, Singing songs can be a small expression of the larger idea of worship. In fact, an argument could be made that the way we sing songs actually reflects the way that we worship in a broader sense. But it's not the extent of our worship. In fact, uh, let me be really clear. You can come here on Sunday morning and we can be singing songs and you can close your eyes and you can put up your hands and you can dance and, and you can be someone who does not worship with the rest of their lives. And you can come here on Sunday morning and you can sit still and meditate on the beauty of the words that are being sung, and you can be a passionate worshiper with your life. So, so please don't get confused the outward signs of worship in a singing context with the extent of worship, because what Jesus is talking about is true worship. And he says this, true worship always honors him. You see it in verse 10, he, he says, why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. True worship in all of its forms, wherever it is, is about Jesus. He says, look at what she did. What she did is, is offering a beautiful thing before me. She's serving me. She's honoring me. In a very poignant way, true worship changes the environment. I'll say that the, 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 a, little bit more, a little bit less subtle way. Um, true worship smelled, Right? Like, in that instance, that, can you imagine, like, if somebody puts on a little too much perfume in a small room, it gets a little rough, right? Like, just imagine this very, very fragrant, expensive perfume broken and poured out all over Jesus. Like, not only did everybody in the room smell it, but the whole neighborhood was changed, I'm telling you. Like, 
Woo, you walk by, you're like, I don't know what's going on in there, but right? Like it's, that's, everything changed. Worship always does that. Listen, when you and I worship in life, not, again, we're not singing songs now, living lives of worship, the environment around us is different. The value that we talk about at York Alliance is called the shalom of the city. What that basically means is this, that um, when, when Jesus has brought peace into our hearts and we go out into the world around us, every environment that we're in should be different and better because we're there. Because we're bringing Jesus with us, right? So your workplace should be better with you there than when you're not there. Because Jesus is there. He's coming with you. It, your neighborhood should be better because Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Like the, the circles of people that you're engaging should be impacted by the fact that Jesus is coming with you. Worship changes the environment, always. And so the way that you and I live as worship should impact the people around us, the world around us, the, the environment that we're in. That's what happened with this woman. It honored Jesus. It changed the environment. And then this fascinating kind of mystical thing happened. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now think about this. She had no idea that Jesus was going to die. Like Jesus told his disciples like six or seven times by now, they forgot. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get his head around it. She has no clue that he's about to be killed. And yet Jesus says, what she did in worship has prepared me for burial. Worship always connects to the bigger picture of what God's doing in the world around us. Again, move away from singing. The way that we live lives of worship connects to this broader thing. So uh, imagine a, a life lived in worship you see someone who would be overlooked and marginalized and you intentionally engage them and express love to them. What's the ripple effect of that? When you live generously and you give to someone out of just the overflow, not because you're, you want to be impressive or because you want to be showy, but just because you love Jesus and you know that you have what you need and so you give freely to someone else, what's the ripple effect of that? When you intentionally love people who are not lovable, and as you do, you express the heart of Jesus to them. What's happening in the broader narrative? This woman had no idea that Jesus was about to die, and yet she was preparing his body for burial. We have no idea what's going on in the lives of the people around us, and yet as we live in lives of our lives of worship, God connects all the dots together in ways that we will likely never know until eternity. Because worship connects with the eternal. And then... Jesus makes this fast, Matthew makes this fascinating transition. Jesus says in verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, if you're just reading Matthew's account, the very appropriate question would be, Who? What's her name? A woman. That's all Matthew gives us. She's anonymous, and yet Jesus says that she will be famous even though we don't know who she is. Now, we know from John's gospel it was likely Mary. You can kind of piece it together and try to figure it out. But Matthew's intentionally leaving her nameless. Why? Because real worship is not about us. Real worship was not about her. It was all about Jesus. It didn't matter what her name was. It mattered that Jesus was being honored and there was this broader narrative that was happening in the world. It wasn't about her. But, next verse. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. 
Matthew's very clear that when we worship something else, it's really worshiping us. Judas's name is well known. His name is infamous. In fact, you don't know a lot of people named Judas because Judas is associated with being a traitor. It's associated with betraying Jesus. Like everybody knows Judas' name. You don't have to be a Christian to know Judas' name. Everybody knows Judas' name. And that's Matthew's point. Being poured out in worship is not about us, but when we worship the created rather than the creator, it is about us, which is why you know Judas' name. So question for you, why did Judas do it? He goes to the chief priests and he says, tell me, uh, uh, t- tell me what you'll give me to betray him. And they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver, which was uh, the price, by the way, of a slave in that day. Why do you do it? Judas had given everything up. For three years, he had left everything. He traveled with this group. He was connected to this tight band of brothers in the inner circle. He was so connected to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, something snapped. Like, what, what happened? None of the gospel writers give us a motivation. Like, John says that Judas was greedy, um, and, and you could connect the dots. He was upset about the woman who poured out the perfume, upset about Jesus' response because he wanted more money, and so he went to the chief priest to try to get money. So maybe that was it, but they, it's not clear scripturally that that was what happened. But maybe he wanted money. Maybe he was greedy. It's possible. Maybe he was an, an idealist. Maybe he had seen the world a certain way. He saw Jesus kind of in the political sphere moving one direction, right or left, whichever way you want to picture it. And then all of a sudden he like swerved and went the other way. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm connected to this side and Jesus all of a sudden got on the wrong team. I'm, I'm done with him. Because the idea was far more important. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was just a self-preservation thing. You know, maybe he was like, I'm watching what's going on. Dude's about to get killed. Like, I see the process here. This is going downhill really quick. And after him comes us, I'm out. I'm going to make sure I get on the right team quick, right? And so maybe just self-preservation. Maybe it was power. You know, you see at the end of Jesus' life this fascinating thing where his disciples are kind of positioning themselves because they see Jesus ascending as a, a king or some sort of a ruler, and they want to be, like, in the right position in the kingdom. So maybe Judas thought, like, if I could start the insurrection that ultimately brings about Jesus to be the king, I would be able to be, like, elevated in the kingdom. We don't know, honestly. We don't, we don't know what his motivation was. And I think that's intentional. Because I think the question that Matthew's asking you and I is, what would it take for you? What would it take for me? Like, sure, I'm committed to following Jesus unless he goes too far, right? Like, I'll follow him, but I have a reputation to uphold, right? Like, I, I, there's a certain way that I'm living. I'll follow him as long as he doesn't ask me to stop living that way. I'll follow him, but not in the crazy kind of way. I know those people. I'm not going to be like those people, right? I'll follow him, but only if I'm okay to compromise some of these things that he taught, because I do not agree with that. Like, I'm not there. What would it take? I think Matthew and all of the gospel writers are leaving Judas's motive open to us because they're asking us the question, what would it take for you to be Judas? What would it take for me to be Judas? What would be the the point where I would say, how much to betray him? I'll take whatever you give me. 
And the reason I think that's true is because of the way Matthew told the story. So we're going to get into the Last Supper next week, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the way that the story unfolded. But Jesus gets into the room with his disciples, and he says, this is verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. There's that word again, paradidomai. One of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Like there's this, there's this questioning that they're bringing to Jesus. Like, is it, is it me? Am I the one? Am I the one? Am I the one? And I think what, what Matthew is trying to paint for us is this image of us coming before Jesus and saying, is it, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? As N.T. Wright speaks about that questioning of Jesus and the way that that scene unfolded, he, he says this, only when you've said that, is it I, Lord? Knowing that it might well be you, can you begin to appreciate what it meant for Jesus to sit at that table and share that Passover meal with them, with Judas too? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? It could have been any of them, and Matthew knows it. Matthew knows that he is not so far righteous that he could never have been Judas. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And we need to come with that same question. Is it I, Lord? And then, verse 25, fascinating. Judas, who would betray him, again, paradidomai, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? So 11 of them say, is it I, Lord? And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Now listen, Rabbi was a very appropriate title for Jesus. It's used throughout the Gospels. Jesus earned it. He was recognized as a rabbi within the Jewish hierarchy. It was very appropriate to call him Rabbi. But Matthew very intentionally says, is it I, Lord? Is it I, teacher? Why? Because when Jesus is Rabbi, when Jesus is teacher, it's very possible that we're worshiping something else. When Jesus is Lord, we're all in with him. So the question that comes to us is, do I see Jesus as a great teacher? Do I see Jesus as a model? Do I see Jesus as someone who is leading me down a path that I desire to go? Or do I see Jesus as the Lord of all who has sacrificed himself for me and has earned and called for my full and complete allegiance. Those are dramatically different things. Judas is willing to follow Jesus as teacher. We are called to follow Jesus as Lord. So the question that Matthew's throwing out to us is, are you all in? Have you given yourself to him completely? And I, I think the picture of what that is is what's challenging for us. Like, what's it look like to be all in? What's it look like to be completely engaged? There, there's a book that I come back to all the time. Uh, it's an old book. I've read it, I don't even know, 20 years ago or so. Um, it's a book called The Cost of Commitment by a guy named John White. And, um, and, and as he talks about the idea of following Jesus, he talks about that idea of being all in. And he uses this illustration of a, an American man who's engaged to a woman, but who is tied in deeply to the Communist Party. So, so I, I know that his allegiances don't line up with our allegiances, but he writes this letter to his fiance breaking off their engagement. 
And he explains it because of his commitment to the Communist Party. Listen to this letter as it unfolds. We communists suffer many casualties. We are those whom they shoot, hang, lynch, tar and feather, imprison, slander, fire from our jobs, and whose lives people make miserable in every way possible. Some of us are killed and imprisoned. We live in poverty. From what we earn, we turn over to the party every cent which we do not absolutely need to live. We communists have neither time nor money to go to movies very often, nor for concerts, nor for beautiful homes and new cars. They call us fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one supreme factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life that money could not buy. We have a cause to fight for, a specific goal in life. We lose our insignificant identities in the great river of humanity, and if our personal lives seem hard or if our egos seem bruised through subordination to the party, we are amply rewarded in the thought that all of us, even though it may be in some very small way, are contributing something new and better for humanity. There is one thing about which I am completely in earnest, the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my meat, and my drink. I work at it by day and I dream of it by night. Its control over me grows greater with the passage of time. Therefore, I cannot have a friend, a lover, or even a conversation without relating them to this power that animates and controls my life. I measure people, books, ideas, and deeds according to the way that they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I have already been in jail for my ideas, and if I need be, I am ready to face death. And then White comments and says, if this letter fails to stir you, you may have already begun to die. We're created to worship. God has made us to give our lives in that way to something. The the hard reality that we need to get through our lives and into our heads and our hearts is that you are that committed to something. That kind of committed, that kind of passion, that kind of devotion, you are that committed to something. And maybe you, you may be that devoted to you. You may be that devoted to success You may be that devoted to the way that you're seen in the world, or you are invited to be that kind of devoted to Jesus himself. A whole spectrum of things that we might be devoted to will ultimately kill us. And there's one that will bring us life. And Matthew says, where do you fit? Here's this woman who's pouring out everything that she has for Jesus' sake. And here's Judas throwing away everything he has for whatever his motivation is, for the thing that he loves, the thing that he's all in for. And so what are we worshiping? At the beginning of this Lenten journey, at the beginning of these two chapters that will unfold the narrative of Jesus going to the cross for our sakes, Matthew is begging the question of us, where do you fit? Where do you fit in the story? There's a bunch of places that you might be. I can think of three off the top of my head. One of them is that you may be here and you may be saying, at best, Jesus is rabbi. 
Like maybe I'll listen to some of his teachings I'm not convinced about all yet. He's definitely not Lord. And guess what? When you speak that out loud, he already knew. All you're doing when you admit that in your own life is saying, uh, you're saying the things that he already knew about you. He's not, he's not offended by that. He knows that. And so identifying where we are is part of what Matthew's inviting us to do. Some are saying, yeah, he's definitely not Lord for me. There are other ones who are saying, I, I desire Jesus to be Lord with a limit. I'll follow him. I, I, I'm good with following him. But I'm not going crazy. Like toe in the water, maybe weighted in up to my knees, but I'm not getting all the way in. Like I'm not losing control. I've seen people who do that. They're crazy. I'm not there. I'm not going to do that. By the way, it's fascinating. Commentators still today talk about the woman as likely having mental problems because of how much she gave and how extravagant it was and how it just doesn't make any sense. You may be in the position where you're saying, I'm dipping my toe in, but I'm, no, I'm, I'm not going to be crazy. I'm not going to be like that. that I, there's a line. I'm not going there. And then I, I truly believe that there are some of us, and, I, and I, I was processing this yesterday afternoon as I was preparing the sermon, and I just felt like uh, just this constant confirmation. That there are those in all of our gatherings, including this one, that are saying, I am all in. I'm I'm there. I just don't know what the alabaster flask looks like for me. Like, I'm all in. I just want to know what I'm supposed to do about it. I want to love Jesus that way. I want the aroma of Christ to go everywhere. I want my life to be poured out. Just not sure what to do. Like, you know, there was only one woman who did that, right? Like, there were other people who followed Jesus till the end. The Apostle John, all the way to the end, but he didn't break a flask. He didn't didn't bring perfume, right? He, He lived a different way. Nicodemus was with Jesus all the way till the end, a late convert who stayed with him all the way through literally till his dead body was there. It wasn't an alabaster flask. It was another kind of all-in worship. And so some of you may be here saying, I'm all in, but I don't know what that looks like for me. I don't know what it, in my story, I don't know what all-in looks like. And I believe that as you come with that kind of heart that's open to the Lord, he wants to show you what it looks like. I believe that that's part of the way the Spirit works in us, that he will, he will show you a, an image or a picture or words, or he will bring somebody into your life that will show you what all in looks like for you. And so that's the way I want to ask you to respond today as we begin this journey toward the cross. If you're in one of those first two categories where you're just saying, I, I'm confessing Jesus as teacher, but not as Lord, or I know I'm holding back and it's with intentionality, not um, like I, I'm learning to give all. It's, it's more like saying, I ain't going there. If that's where you are and, and you're ready to step into the journey, not fix it, but just admit it before God and say, I, I, if you want me all in, you're going to have to help change my heart. Like I, 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 I'm willing, but I don't, I don't know what that looks like. If you're in that position, I'm going to ask you uh, on the front corners, either corner, we would love, there are intercessors and pastors here who would love to just pray with you. And again, what you would be saying to God is what he already knows. And we would love to meet you there and, and pray with you. But if you're here and you're saying, I'm all in, like I'm, I'm ready, but I don't have a vision of what it looks like for me. I, I don't know what to do with it. Like I'm there, but I don't know what to do with it. 
In just a minute, we're going to sing, and, and as we sing, I'm just going to ask you to come toward the front and gather right up here. You can stand, you can sit in the front row, the front row is kind of open over here, or you can kick the Normans out and whatever, that's fine. Uh, come, come and gather in the front, and we're just going to take a minute, and, and it's not going to be a long dramatic thing, but we're just going to take a minute, we're going to say, God, through your spirit that we believe is at work in us, reveal that to us, show us what it is to take the alabaster flask and break it. I, I'm, I'm willing. I'm all in. Show me what it's like. And then we're just going to worship him. We're going to practice here singing and declaring what we need to live in the world. That Jesus is the one who has our affections and our allegiance and where we can place our hope.